scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was meant that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Oh, surprising. Put my glasses on, too. I'm trying to build up suspense because there's nothing quite like a good letdown after a lot of suspenseful moments. But hey. I have something I'd like to show you, Spring Garden. Whoa, what is it? Meat Devastator. Uh, there's a picture that we've got for the screen. There you go. That's him up close. Well, the next picture is an important one. Here's Devastator uh, body slamming Boba Fett. Anyway. Devastator is a, well, like most uh, toys made in the 80s, marketed either to boys or girls, is unrealistic and top heavy. <laughs> <clears throat> Anyway. Which, anyway, a little slam on Barbies there. but Devastator is a transformer, and actually, he isn't one transformer. This magnificent toy is six transformers that are called Constructicons because they are construction vehicles. They come together to make this one mighty Devastator. Six individually sold, of course, toys that come together as one. And in case you don't know what a transformer is, it is a robot that transforms into something else. So it is a car or an airplane or a dinosaur or a construction vehicle that transforms into a robot and back again. In the case of the construction cons, they were construction vehicles. But they had this special ability to transform into one robot together. And of course, you know, if anyone who knows anything knows, they make this noise, they go, right? A little throwback for those kids, those of us raised in the 80s. However, they don't make that noise the whole time they transform, at least the toys don't, because you'd be making that noise for like four minutes <laughs> to try to take these six robots. And, you know, I mean, it's not a quick thing. If you're, when you're, I was playing with them, you had to like really pause the, like, the excitement. Oh, let's, let's fight. Stop. 
for like four minutes to make this amazing thing, but it's still beautiful. I was obviously a huge Transformers fan, and my love of Transformers began with, like most toys, with watching a cartoon on TV. And naturally, of course, uh, why live with watching something on TV when you can have it in your own home? as toys, you, and you can recreate your favorite episodes, and you can dream up new and exciting adventures. Something I didn't know at the time, of course, was that the TV show was only created so that they could sell the toys. They actually hired a Marvel comic book writers to create names and backstories and technical specifications, tech specs, so that kids would already be sold before the toys even landed on the shelves. Their eyes would already have gazed upon them and dreamt of them before the toys even existed. But as a kid, none of that made any difference. And quite frankly, even knowing it now doesn't make a lot of difference to me in that fact I loved playing with those toys. I had quite a few of them, and I used to play with them for hours. Now, when Constructicons came out, the Devastator came out in 1985. I mean, I wasn't born yet, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was actually 11 when they came out. Um, I don't know what time span it took from that first jaw-dropping moment of discovery of the Constructicons and the show to finally being able to purchase the final one of the six to bring them together in that first glorious moment of making Devastator. But I do remember my excitement. And then, of course, as anyone who's watched the Toy Story, movie, Toy Story movies know, as time went on, eventually the toys get put in a box. Life took me on my own adventures. And once Monica and I got married and moved into our own house, my mom, who had been storing my box of toys, although she sold off a bunch of them, everybody knows this, your parents sell off the ones that are like really important, but uh, anyway, I'd like to promise not to do that to my kids, but probably will. How was my mom to know? But she saved this one, so. But she passed on this box of toys that she hadn't sold yet to us. And then you flash forward a couple more years, and uh, I remember we had visitors over who had very young boys who, well, you know, they were quite bored with the toys that my daughters had. And I remember that moment uh, when my wife, Monica, said something along the lines of, Greg, why don't you go to the basement, take out the box of your old toys for these boys, high-energy boys to play with? I'm like, What? Right? You want me to take out these, the, take these random boys who we already see smashing the girls' toys together. We want them to give me my most special childhood toys. What if they break them or, or steal them? You know, when your brain starts going in this direction, right? Like, or they steal them. Or worse, what if they think they're just worthless, boring toys? And they're like, what's wrong with that guy that he used to think these were awesome? It was this weird moment of fear and thinking, it's not worth risking it for these kids. Risking the wear and tear on toys that I spent countless, uncountable hours playing with that are already worn down and that are already missing parts and that I haven't played with for 20 years and are just sitting in a box untouched in my closet. But I still wanted to protect them, <laughs> right? It took me a few deep breaths and maybe by the grace of God, I don't know, 
I went to the, get the box for these kids to play with. Do any of you have stuff in your life that's like that? Stuff that was designed to be used and to enjoyed, but that you keep hidden away, whether because you want to keep it safe or protected or simply because you actually don't have any real use for it. Well, you might one day, so you better keep it, right? Perhaps you have a piece of furniture or perhaps a whole room of furniture that no one's allowed to go in there. No one's allowed to sit on the stuff, but just, you know, in case it gets wear and tear, you know. You wouldn't want someone to sit on the couch and maybe drop a piece of food on this couch that you bought to sit on. You know, those, those rooms and those couches that are saved for special occasions, which means they're never to be enjoyed. Like a super comfortable piece of furniture, uh, a couch that was so expensive you cover it with plastic to protect it. But the plastic is super uncomfortable, so no one enjoys sitting on this really expensive, comfortable couch. Today I want us to consider the purpose of stuff, and more elusively, the promise of our stuff. The promise of what our possessions should do for us the purpose of what we own. We are a culture that is obsessed with owning and with guarding our stuff. Well, perhaps it's true to say we are actually a culture more obsessed with, less so about owning than we are obsessed with having. If we can't afford to own it, we'll then lease it or we'll rent it. Or we go into credit card debt so that we can have it. We are obsessed with having even when we can't afford to own. And one of the great lies of our consumer society is the promise that if you have something, your life will be better, will be deeper, or will be fuller. Peter Walsh, uh, he's a professional declutterer. He gets paid to help people declutter and to organize their homes. This is very much the same way as Marie Kondo is a uh, professional tidier. It's the same thing, just less trendy. He writes in his book enough already about investing in the promise. How whenever we buy something or we really want to have something that we don't have, we are investing ourselves in the promise. See if this relates to any of you. The promise that, you know, these clothes will make me look more attractive. Or these clothes will make me feel better about myself. Or these clothes will make people look at me and have a different view of me. The promise that this clone will make beautiful people want to go to parties with me. <laughs> My daughter laughed at that one because, yeah. She's like, beautiful people already go to parties with you, Dad. My daughters and my wife are beautiful and they go to parties with me. That was the, the promise that if I buy this off-road vehicle, my family life is going to be more picturesque or I'm going to live more adventurously. The promise that a home exercise contraption or a fancy blender or a new pill will give me an amazing body and tight glutes. That purchasing a home in Toronto market will finally give me security and take away financial stress. Which anyone who owns a home knows <laughs> that it kind of does the opposite. Everything we want to own is sold to us with a promise. 
Ironically, even Walsh's book is sold with a promise. But sometimes that promise is marketed to us. But sometimes that promise is coming from something deep inside of us. In her book, Abundant Simplicity, Jen Johnson, and I see that Karen has it in the library. It's actually, if you're interested in finding ways in your spirituality and your faith of finding uh, simplicity, abundant simplicity, it is worth uh, checking out. She identifies a number of ways that are, she doesn't use this wording, but that ways that our stuff promises to fill our deepest longings. And she gives a list of longings. And see if you recognize yourself in any of these. A longing for importance, where we use owning a house or a car or the newest gadget or toy or clothes to try to give us a sense of significance, to make us feel important. We purchase because we feel inadequate as we are and we have some hope that this thing might even help make us better parents or friends or Christians or children or students. We have a longing for love. Perhaps we didn't receive attention or affection from others and we try to fill that with a sense of being cared for with objects. We purchase to impress people with the hope that we will be seen and loved to please other people so that people will look at us and love us. A fear of not having enough. What if I run out of this or that? I should stock up. What if I fall in hard times? where the more we accumulate makes us feel secure, like we're going to be okay now that, you know, we have got a, bo- a closet full of toilet paper. Or uh, I recently heard they, at drugstores, they can't even give away COVID test samples anymore. They can't give them away. Do you remember like a month ago, people, we were paying like $75 for 10? We just had to have them in case, in case. And now they can't even give these things away. How about guilt and regret? You know, that item that you got for your birthday or Christmas from someone that you're never actually going to use? But you can't give yourself, you can't bring yourself to get rid of it because you'd feel guilty about that. Or that piece of clothing you know you're never going to fit into again, but maybe one day I will. I I was going to, I thought about putting on a shirt that I got when I was a medium, uh, men's medium, but I thought, oh man... (laughs) That's, that's too embarrassing. Uh, anyway. But I'm going to keep it in my closet, right? Because it's important. I will. I will be a medium again. No. How about that fear of making decisions that freezes us? And so we just end up doing nothing. The next one is perfectionism. We purchase because we want that perfect purse, the perfect watch, the perfect high-performance rims for our tires. We don't want to get rid of something out of one day, fear that one day we might regret getting rid of it. One day this thing might be perfect for what I need. I mean, we can't imagine now what that is going to be, but it will be perfect. And so we store and we accumulate and we hoard all kinds of stuff in the chance that one day we may just be able to use it. All the while the accumulation fills not only the physical space in our homes, but it fills our mental and our emotional space. And finally, she points out the inability to accept where I am in life and who I am. Where we hold on to things from the past, not simply as keepsakes, uh, 
But because we long for the past, we still live in the past, where we are unable to accept who we are in the present. We are unable to accept where life has taken us, and so we hold on to things from the past. I mean, I don't, I don't have that problem at all. <laughs> I don't wish that I was a kid any, anymore. Uh, I, mean, I do. I have trouble letting go of that time. But these things keep us from saying, that's who I was, but that's not who I am now. Who I am now and where I am now is where God has brought me, but holding on to the past through our stuff can keep us from accepting who God has made us to be in the now. Living in the past keeps us from being present to ourselves and to others in the now. It keeps us from being present and open to God's moving in our lives in the now. We need God's spirit to help us to let go of the hold our accumulated stuff has over us. We need God's spirit to help us resist buying into the lie that the more we have, that one thing will make me more than I am. We need God's spirit to open our eyes to see where these promises of having and accumulating are false. There is nothing that we can buy, nothing that we can own, no amount of stuff that we can accumulate will fully fill the longings that we have within us. When we do buy into these deceitful promises of consumerism and we try to fill these deep longings with stuff, it actually has the opposite result. We have brief moments of adrenaline or excitement, but they disappear and they leave us emptier, longing for even more. And any of us, if we pay attention to it, who have tried to fill our longings with stuff, we know that we just keep needing to get more and more. It only leads in one direction, and it actually is towards emptiness. Our houses are full but our lives are empty. The more we invest in deceitful promises of accumulation, things that we don't actually need but we simply want, we begin to believe more and more that they are things that we need and we lose perspective on what is real. Things that are luxuries get twisted in our hearts to become things that we think we need. And slowly we begin to sacrifice what is good and what is abundant for what is cheap and what is shallow. One of Jesus' followers, he's named Paul, and he wrote a good portion of the part of the Bible that we call the New Testament. And he wrote this in a letter. And this, it's the letter, he wrote a, couple, a few letters to a young pastor named Timothy. And he writes this in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10. Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we will take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And they fall into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The trap and temptation of accumulating what we have in this world leads us into foolish and harmful desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction. Buyer beware. What you've been promised 
will not be fulfilled unless those promises are made by the living God. Now, of course, these things in themselves, they're actually usually neither good nor bad. There's nothing wrong with having or with buying in and of itself. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we all need to sell everything and not have anything and just have one of each, you know, one fork and one knife and just make do or whatever. But it's how our hearts are oriented towards this stuff that that either leads us into this ruin and destruction or into goodness and to abundance of life. Jesus himself said in Luke 12 verse 15, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he says in Matthew 6, 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he continues, actually, in a way that at first doesn't seem related to possessions, but that is, I think, related to possession. He says, The eye eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It seems bizarre to be connect- that this is about possessions and treasures on earth. But here's what I think Jesus is saying. Where my translation says, if your eyes are healthy. The word here is not about having 20-20 vision. The word means good, simple, clear But even more, the word means generous. If your eyes are generous, if your eyes are generous and good, when your eyes look at the treasures of the earth, at phones and cars and toys, when you look at possessions with generous eyes, with goodness and generosity in your eyes, your whole being will be full of light. But if you look at the promises of consumerism with desire and a lust to have, your eyes are unhealthy. They are sin. They are brokenness, which leads you down that path of destruction that Paul talks about, away from the fullness of life that God desires for you. So how then can we have generous eyes towards the stuff that we have? And it includes the stuff that we need, but the stuff that we want. The story that Peggy read for us actually I think is a beautiful picture of a good and generous relationship to possessions. Jesus is invited over to the house of his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. If you remember from what Peggy read, Lazarus had actually died and Jesus raised him back to life. So naturally, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they have great reason to celebrate Jesus so they throw a party to honor Jesus. And while people are eating at this dinner that is given in Jesus' honor, Mary took an extremely expensive perfume, a perfume that cost what the average worker made in a year. So just to give some context, the average Canadian today makes somewhere between fifty dollars to $70,000 a year. 
So imagine a $70,000 perfume. Now, perhaps if you're on the sunshine list, adjust that number higher to a million or, uh, or to, you know, 100,000. So imagine this $70,000. You work for a year to buy this thing that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they have sitting in their house. Now, chances are they probably weren't, uh, they were probably in a pretty comfortable financial position to even have such a thing. But even rich, they were likely saving it for something really special. The fact that Lazarus had died, this, they, Lazarus had died, and usually this is something that would be used in a funeral. He had already died, and they still have this. They didn't use it for Lazarus. They didn't even use it for his other brother when he died. So they kept it for something pretty special. It was a possession that to them was worth holding tightly onto. And yet here, Mary comes and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus as an expression of adoration. It was an extremely costly and generous expression of love for Jesus. Mary had generous eyes. All of the purposes that that perfume could have had, all of the reasons it could have stayed on the shelf, Mary chose to pour it out and show her love and devotion to Jesus. She knew where her true treasure lied, and it wasn't in an abundance of possessions. It was at the feet of Jesus, the one place where her longings for importance and love, the one place where her fears of not having enough, her guilt and regret and perfectionism and nostalgia for the good old days, the one place where they all found purpose in the promises of God. In the ways that we relate to our stuff, stuff we have, the stuff we want to have, the stuff we think we need, do we, like Mary, have generous eyes? How can our possessions serve a greater purpose than cluttering our homes or self-indulgence? Even the things that we keep within our ownership, again, I'm not saying we're called to give everything away. The things within our ownership, can they be repurposed for good? Do we see in possessions a possibility and purpose for generosity, for adoration, perhaps for hospitality, for service. The world promises that happiness and fulfillment and fullness comes from possessing and owning, but it doesn't and it won't. So instead of being sucked into these false promises that consumerism makes, let us work alongside the Holy Spirit to relinquish the hold that consumeristic accumulation has over us so that our eyes would be generous, so that our possessions would be transformed from preser preservation to praise, transformed from accumulation to generosity, transformed from self-indulgence to hospitality. By the way, did you like what I did there? I used the word transforming. I, I snuck it in there. I had to do that. Brilliant. It would have been more brilliant if I didn't point it out, I suppose. But uh, anyway.
So there are unlimited ways that this uh, can be lived out in our lives. When your eyes are gazing upon something that you feel you must just have or you wish that you could have, I mean, this is pretty simple, but how many of us do it? Just ask God about it. Pause our desires and our cravings for a moment. Say, God, what about this thing? Why do I desperately want this thing? Is it promising to fulfill something in my life? And will it actually do that? Or am I being tricked or deceived? What purpose will it have? And is there something that will be for abundance of life for myself or for others? Try waiting on a purchase. How many of you, as I point out, how many of you have stood in a line to buy something that a few months later is filling shelves and are on discount prices, but you know, you had to have it right away. You ran out and bought something you just needed right away only for it to be quickly unused or forgotten. Let's look at the things that we do have and ask, is this fulfilling a purpose in my life? Is it possible it can serve more beautiful or worshipful purpose in my life? Or perhaps it's possible it can serve a more beautiful and worshipful purpose in someone else's life. Now, my kids and my wife are amazing at this. The amount of things that they have said, you know what, I don't really need this, and have given it away as a blessing to others. Not everything needs to be given away. I don't plan to give Devastator away, but I also don't plan for it or anything else in my home to take a place of priority in my life. And if you have things that you are ready to move on, if you can financially afford it, Instead of selling it on Kijiji simply to pocket the cash, why not find it a new home? Are there people in your neighborhood that are in need of what you no longer want? Organizations working with the underhoused or the poor or refugees where our excess can meet someone else's need? In the story that Peggy read for us, Judas is the one who turned out to be a betrayer and a thief, although at this time of the story they didn't actually know that. He argued that $70,000 perfume should have been sold uh, and given to the poor. And Jesus' response is, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but we will not always have me. Which on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we live in a time when Jesus is no longer with us here. But he told us himself that when we care for the poor, when we feed the hungry, and we give drink to the thirsty, we show hospitality to strangers, when we give clothes to people who need clothes, when we care for the sick, when we visit prisoners, when we do these things, we are doing it to him. We are doing these things to Jesus. These acts of worship and adoration are for Jesus among us when we care for the poor. Are there places where our plenty can meet another's scarcity? And as accumulation loses its power on us by the Spirit of God, contentment and gratitude and generosity can flow more and more in us and out of us. So let us all have the generous eyes of Mary towards our possessions. 
that they may be poured out in an extravagant adoration of a living God who died and who rose again so that we may have fullness and abundance in life. Let's pray. Jesus, all that we have is yours. Everything that we possess has been our gifts that have been entrusted to us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God so the promises of consuming and buying would be broken and instead that our hope would be in your faithful promises. Transform us more and more into people who worship and adore you with contentment and generous eyes towards those around us. Amen.